Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Nina Kim. Coming up on Forum, parking. It's one of the biggest paradoxes of American life. There's both too much and not enough. One to two billion parking spaces in the U.S. mean several for each car, with the ratio even higher in cities. But tell that to the harried driver seeking a spot near an appointment or living in a densely populated neighborhood. There are never enough places to park. We'll talk to Slate's Henry Grabar about how the pursuit of enough parking has made us need more parking and how we get out of this cycle. Grabar's new book is Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Join us. I'm Nina Kim. Welcome to Forum. For Henry Grabar, parking is a subject that's simultaneously integral to the way things work and overlooked. He says parking has determined how the place you live feels, looks, and functions, the design of strip malls, office towers, and homes, the character of our cities, and the health of our environments. It's also something American drivers feel deeply entitled to, a parking spot that's available, convenient, and free. Have you ever been upset that you couldn't find a parking spot or let the availability of parking determine whether you'll do something or go somewhere? Tell us the lengths you've gone to for parking at 866-733-6786 by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook at KQED Forum. Henry Grabar covers housing, transportation, and urban policy for Slate, and his new book is Paved Paradise, How Parking explains the world. Welcome to Forum, Henry. Thanks for having me. So parking really can make us kind of crazy. My friend Brian says he's never felt like hitting anyone in his life except when someone snaked his spot and that he actually stalked someone in Costco for a while who took his face. I'm wondering, Henry, what you learned about why parking can have such an emotional hold on us. Oh boy. Uh, well, that's um, that is that's a big question. I think you know, <laughs> I think it's it's sort of like road rage, right? Except when you're parking, you get the same sort of road rage feeling that you get behind the wheel. Except then you're there and you're actually in person. You know, you can get out of the car and, and fight. And many people do. And in fact, when I was working on this book, I had a Google alert set up for parking space murder. Oh, no. And those happen about <laughs> once a week in the in the United States. So uh, watch out out there. Sometimes it's it's maybe better to go around the block another time. 
Yeah, um, <laughs> I thought you encapsulated it really well when you said you cannot get out of the car until you have a place to park. And so you are missing out on the time that you could be doing what you wanted to be doing by looking for parking. Right. I mean, I think that's that's the big thing, right? In 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 the United States, driving is obligatory for almost any activity you need to do. And so therefore, the parking space is nothing less than the link between driving and life itself. So no wonder people get upset when they don't get the parking they, they feel they're entitled to. And I think that's the big picture reason that people get upset about parking. And then um, maybe um, related to that is is the fact that it's this giant um, system that, as we've just said, is crucial to the way we go about our days. But it's really poorly managed. It's totally overlooked. And, and you know, absent from the training of architects and engineers and city planners. And, um, and, and so we've ended up with a system that not only occupies a, an enormous amount of land, but also uh, just doesn't really work that well. Yeah. Uh, and then we react to it in ways like the, that study where you found that uh, when a driver perceives someone wants their spot, they'll actually take longer to leave. <laughs> Or or the way they pe treat people who are parking enforcers, in part because, as you point out, the way parking is enforced is usually overly punitive and, and not necessarily consistent. It's, it's regressive, especially for people in, with low incomes. Yeah, I think <clears throat> on the subject of parking enforcement, that uh, people are right to feel that cities sometimes manage uh, parking as a source of revenue, as a pure source of revenue. And I think what the parking reformers, who are the subject of my book, have um, recognized or, or, or rediscovered is that paying for parking is not supposed to be about generating revenue to plug other holes in the city budget. It is, in fact, the only way we have of managing this precious resource, which is valuable curb space in the center city. And so if you're if you're if your goal there is to make as much money as possible, whether through parking meter rates or, or through fines, um, you're going to wind up with a with an upset citizenry um, that feels that parking enforcement is a ripoff. Um, and unfortunately, I think that has spoiled the reputation of the parking meter uh, as it was originally intended, which was as a tool um, to, to, to manage this, this precious resource. There's also this view that we're competing for parking, that there isn't enough parking. But on the aggregate, you say that's not true. How so? Well, in the United States, as, as you mentioned, there's between one and two billion parking spaces. So that's between, you know, three to four to six to seven per car. Um, and obviously, not all those cars are parked at the same time. Some are in motion. So in reality, the national parking stock is never more than 30 percent full. Now, of course, that probably doesn't match your experience, um, and I think there's a few reasons for that. I mean, obviously, lots of people want to be in the same place at the same time, and so we end up um, competing for, for a limited supply. But even in big cities, like let's take the San Francisco Bay Area, there are um, 2.4 spaces per car in the Bay Area. So uh, parking is always more than half empty, generally speaking, and that adds up to 15 million parking spots total. And, and that may seem kind of abstract, so let me put that in context for you. That's enough parking in the Bay Area to wrap a parking lane around the planet Earth twice <laughs> and still have some parking left over. 
Okay, but I'm going to ask the question that you yourself pose, which is, if there's all this parking, why is it so hard to find a spot? <laughs> well, I think there's a few reasons for that. Um, the first of them, perhaps, is that parking is underpriced. So when you go to a place where everyone wants to go at the same time and the parking is free, um, people are not using it in the most efficient manner possible. And you'll often find a situation where... Um, employees of downtown shops will show up first thing in the morning and they'll park their cars right in front of the shop and they'll park all day. And when somebody arrives later to grab a meal or pick up a package or something like that, they'll find there's no parking available. And that that's an example of how even a small fee for parking can help sort people um, by how long they need that parking for. And you really want those all-day parkers to be parking a little further away um, from their from their destination so you reserve some of that prime curb access for people with more urgent needs during the day. So so number one is it's it's underpriced, right? And that and that forces everybody to compete for the same spots and drive around the block forever and, and eventually get in fights and stalk people through Costco. <laughs> so that and then and the other thing is that it's not shared, and so you end up with this massive parking supply, but it's sort of divided up into these fiefdoms, right? And so you have a um, a giant condo tower with a 500 space garage, and that'll be empty all day because all those people have driven out to go to work and do other things. Um, and then next door, you might have a you know a restaurant that gets busy at lunch, and their parking lot will be full. And so we have essentially mandated that all this parking correspond to each individual land use, and it's very difficult. Um, to share that parking between those different uses. But there's enormous potential there. Um, and, and that's another reason why they're, they're, parking may, in fact, be abundant, but it feels scarce because yeah. you show up and you find that you can't park in the parking lot of the bar when you're going to the video store or whatever. Yes, you see all these signs that say this spot is specifically reserved for this particular business. Um, exactly, yeah. Or entity. I think the other thing you point out is that uh, – Part of the reason that we all get so frustrated is that parking can be extremely hard to find, especially in cities. <laughs> and it's it's actually interesting to think about, wow, that really does have an impact um, on people's ability to park and feel like there is enough parking. It's, yeah, it's really bizarre. I think, um, you know, there used to be this there, – there used to be a lot of things about living in a city where people attached – a great sense of pride to local knowledge, right? Like you know the you know the best shortcut or you know the best place to get tacos or something like that. And with the internet, a lot of that stuff has been democratized and you can go online and Google will tell you it's gonna take you nineteen minutes to drive from X to Y and you know, I it's a it's a it's a miracle. Uh, but we haven't gotten there with parking. <laughs> and and so parking remains to me like the last kind of unexplored frontier of urban life where like it's not mapped it's not priced it's sort of the province of local knowledge and um that is kind of cool i guess if you know where the the best spot is but in terms of managing an urban system you do not want uh you do not want to count on drivers um coming in and then you know uh chatting with the bartender for for 20 minutes to to get the scoop on on where to park right i mean that, that should be obvious well, uh, we asked listeners before the show, what would make parking better in California? And I think this person is echoing some of the things you said. Tim tweets, right pricing it. So as you say, we make parking free and that expectation is out there and that that then incentivizes parking in spaces that you're just going to sit at for a really long time and your car's not going to um, end up being used very much. And the other thing that Tim tweets is providing attractive, safe and efficient alternatives to driving 
just on the the pay question though we are very much like taught to expect free or or often as possible free parking I mean, you even write about how you miss an entire afternoon at the beach with your friends because you refused to pay for parking and they went on the ferry without you so so how do we change that sort of psychological expectation yes i am no i am no more immune from the uh, distaste from uh, distaste of paying for parking than than you know somebody who didn't write a book about parking i don't like paying for it either but um, uh, <laughs> but the reality is that, that if if you don't if you don't you you wind up with this um, situation where um, free parking well it seems like a bonus at the time that you're you're parking in that spot it has uh, lots of of negative externalities I, I think the the origin of this system um, is that cities began to fear suburban competition in the 1950s mm. and uh, rightfully so because malls were established with acres and acres of free parking and they were always boasting about how easy it was to park in their newspaper ads and cities said well we have to compete with that we have to find some way of um, offering shoppers uh, that that standard of service here in the city and um, and that was never going to work you know a city was never going to be able to provide as easy and ample and free a, a parking experience as, as you would get parking at the mall. And um, and so ultimately, uh, we wound up with this messed up uh, parking situation in a lot of cities, but also um, with certainly with the expectation that, that parking ought to be free and mm. not to mention uh, immediately available when I arrive and directly in front of my destination. And those are awfully high standards to uphold. Yeah, awfully high standards. I don't know that we apply them to a lot of services as much as we do to parking. And we're talking about parking with Henry Grabar, the emotional hold it has had on us, especially when we're looking in vain for a spot and the impact that parking spaces and lots have had on our cities and natural environments. And you, our listeners, can join the conversation. What do you want to ask Henry Grabar about the impact of parking on our lives? What do you think would make parking better in California? Anything you've ever done for parking or to avoid having to park? Anything maybe you're a little embarrassed to admit you did <laughs> for a parking spot or because someone took yours? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. Or you can call us 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking about parking this hour, about why it feels like there's never enough parking, even though in the U.S. there as there are as many as six parking spaces per car, according to Henry Grabar, who's just written a book called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. And you, our listeners, are sharing with us the impact that parking has on our lives, what you've witnessed or been involved in related to trying to find a parking spot. Um, <laughs> what choices you've made based on parking in terms of what you'll do, where you'll go, where you'll even live. You can join the conversation at 866-733-6786 or posting on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Pam writes, my neighborhood near North Berkeley recently went through a battle royale about bike lanes in a commercial district that would have replaced a few parking spaces. I was just amazed at the passion people have for those parking spaces. There were a few people who had passion for the bike lanes, but they lost. And this is Berkeley. And William writes, I just did a history project at UCB on supermarket parking lots. And in the 1950s, all the new Bay Area supermarkets advertised parking as a major attraction for their stores. Now we all have to pay for the parking, whether we get there by car or not. So great you're talking about this. Actually, Henry, that is exactly what you were talking about before the break, how cities felt the need to compete with the suburbs and provide enough parking or what they perceived would be enough parking in cities when really that was such a high bar to meet. And it led to policies that you say really had a negative impact. Can you talk about parking minimums, what they are and the effect that they had, and maybe even the effect they had on Los Angeles, which is a great example. Sure. So <clears throat> one of the one of the things that happened during this period when cities begin to worry about their 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 parking supplies, they have these, you know, terrible traffic jams and they conclude that most of the people driving in, um, one of the reasons there's so much traffic is that they're circling round and round looking for parking. And they decide that what they're going to do is put in place these laws, these zoning laws that require that every use, whatever type of building it is, it's a restaurant, it's a house, whatever, include a certain amount of parking. And one of the results of that is that over the next 50 years and, and until the present day and in most places in the United States, parking has been as obligatory a part of any new development, no matter what it is, um, as a front door or a bathroom or a bedroom window. And um, I think your um, uh, listener uh, um, alluded to the fact that we pay for it. And uh, we should say more about that. Parking is pretty expensive to build. Um, it can cost structured parking can cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars per spot. Underground parking can run into the six figures per parking spot. Wow. And so when you require that parking come with every new use, you are passing that cost on to the eventual user of that property, whether it's somebody uh, buying a condo or renting an apartment or even in a very sort of roundabout way going grocery shopping because the supermarket had to pay for all those parking spots. You may not pay when you drive in, but they paid for that land. And that's making its way in, in, into your bill when you, when you check out. And so in Los Angeles, where they implemented this, what basically happened? So Los Angeles is a fascinating story because in L.A., you can, you can watch the evolution of architecture as the parking minimums increase. They begin to require parking of new housing. You see these uh, vernacular Los Angeles forms begin to disappear. Things like the bungalow court, for example, which many people now find a very 
charming and quaint instance of early 20th century Angeleno architecture, but it's obsolete. It can't be built anymore um, because it requires too many parking spaces, um, and 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 then so on. You know, then then builders came up with new forms, right? New forms that would. Um, provide enough parking, and, and the city kept raising its parking requirements. And, and this type of architecture we basically made um, obsolete, not not just in Los Angeles, but across the country. I mean, you cannot build in most of the United States a, a row of brownstones or a row of triple-deckers or a row of painted ladies like you'd find in San Francisco. It just doesn't have enough parking, so it can't be done. So what happened when L.A. got rid of it in 1999, which is also why this is so fascinating, because you really can see the difference. Yeah, and that's a cool story because I think one of the debates that we um, that parking reformers have is, okay, we have these laws, right? But we also know that Americans have a preference for driving, and many of them, um, dr- you know, the American dream is the you know uh, house in the suburbs with the front lawn and the two car garage. So uh, the question they ask is, well, is it really the laws that's compelling all this parking, or is it just preference? Is it just the market? And I think in 1999. Los Angeles decided to find out, and they passed an adaptive reuse ordinance for their downtown, which up until that point had been composed of um, a really splendid collection of early 20th century skyscrapers, which had no tenants. And um, they were impossible to reuse because they didn't have enough parking uh, to comply with um, contemporary, at that point, land use requirements in Los Angeles. So um, what they did was they said, all right, from now on, you can reuse these buildings and you provide however much parking you want. And builders leapt at the opportunity. You had dozens and dozens of skyscrapers converted into new residential units over the next 10 years. And in fact, between 1999 and 2008, downtown Los Angeles added more new units of housing in these converted buildings than they had built in the previous three decades total. So it prompted this massive housing boom. And you know, where did they park? You know, some developers did build parking. They found a way to slot it into these old buildings or they um, bought parking next door. Uh, but but many of them found that, you know, I think one of the one of the things you learn about this, um, this ARO story, this adaptive reuse story, is that it wasn't that the new tenants and owners didn't drive necessarily, but that they found other places to park. And And it's an example of what sharing parking can do because downtown L.A. had all these commercial parking garages associated with the offices that were empty all night. And so for the residents, well, they were right there. And many of them parked their car there. And did it matter that the garage wasn't in the building? Well, no, of course not. They just walked down the block to the garage. Yeah. So, I I mean, I guess that that is a great story in terms of talking about the benefits of sharing parking about the benefits of doing this adaptive reuse. I guess ultimately what convinced people was that they uh, enjoyed living in LA so much that they were willing to accept some of the inconveniences of parking maybe further away than they originally did. Yeah. And to be sure, there there were tenants and clients who um, moved into these spaces who um, did not have cars at all or, you know, a family of four that got by with one car or something like that. And previously, they would have had to pay for two parking spaces no matter what. And um, now there was a, you know, just a, a more flexible arrangement. And I think what you got in downtown LA, I mean, 25 years later, it's, um, I think it can be hard to envision just how, um, empty some of those streets were after, after 5 PM. But there is, um, there's a very lively and exciting street life down there. And I think one of the developers who participated in the, um, in the adaptive reuse ordinance and was, um, one of the you know guys who bought some of these buildings when they were basically worthless and decided that he should turn them into apartments 
um, he said that the measure of a uh, of a city is 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 being able to uh, to walk to um, to buy a toothbrush, and 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 he found that you know at a certain point downtown LA had achieved that that measure of of cityhood, and it was in large part thanks to these buildings. And I think one of the advantages, even for people who drive, of parking around the corner is that you do create that street life. It becomes a requirement um, to do just a little bit of walking on the street. Uh, if you live in the neighborhood, and that's that's a big improvement over people who live or work in buildings just going straight down in the elevator right into the garage, right? I mean, it, even just that half block or block from the parking garage um, contributes to the life of the neighborhood. Hmm. We're talking with Henry Grabar, a staff writer at Slate, who's written about how parking has affected the way our communities look, feel, and function. His new book is Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation at 866-733-6786. John in Sebastopol is on the line. Hi, John. Join us. Hi, good morning. Um, I'm currently sitting out in the suburbs in a parking lot where several of the buildings are look to be uh, unoccupied, and there's like acres of unused spaces around here. <laughs> wow. And this galls me deeply um, as a person who formerly lived in higher density places. I'm wondering just about your thinking about the stock of unused parking that we have, especially out in suburban shopping centers. What could be done with that? Thanks, John. Henry? Well, I guess the optimistic way to look at it is that if we can begin to rethink uh, the role of parking in American life, and I don't just mean with respect to the laws, but also with respect to the way we approach it when we discuss these kinds of projects in community meetings and in local politics, um, we have this tremendous opportunity because we have essentially built a kind of shadow civilization in which every single building is accompanied by a, a companion space of just nothingness. And um, so, you know, I mean, imagine anything could ha anything could be done. I think there are um, some some really cool projects happening around the country with um, abandoned malls because they precisely because they there's so much um, territory to work with there. Um, where you can, uh, you know, you, you can, starting from scratch, create some really beautiful mixed-use housing. And, and I think one of the things we have going for us is that the, the country has a tremendous housing shortage. So there actually is like a, an enormous, I mean, I don't need to tell you this in California, but there's enormous demand um, for, for new housing. And I think it would be really a shame to miss out on the opportunity. I think sometimes people um, look at, you know, a, an abandoned suburban mall and they say, well, you're never going to be able to build densely there because everyone who lives there is is going to need a car to get around the city, get to work, et cetera. And about that, I, I just want to say that I think there's a perception that most automobile trips are the commute. But that's actually not true. The commute represents a very small share of car trips that people take. Most trips that people take are local. Half of all trips in big metro areas are under three miles. And so that's a distance that, you know, could be done on a bike, in a golf cart, on foot, if we made the streets safe enough. And I, I want to come back to something that an earlier listener pointed out, which is this battle over the North Berkeley bike lane. When we talk about parking as an impediment um, to permitting people to get around any other way, it is sometimes a literal trade-off in, in that case, right? Like if you can't convince the city government to remove a few parking spaces, you can't provide a safe space for people to get around in some other way. And I think anybody who rides a bike in a city uh, will be familiar with that situation of riding in a Sharrows surrounded by trucks and cars and feeling like, wow, the city really doesn't think my life is worth more than a parking space.
Well, Amy writes, how can this be that there's more space for parking spaces than housing? Did I get that right? If so, how is this measured? And what are examples of the biggest spaces? Guessing airports, shopping centers, schools. Do you want to just talk a little bit about your calculation, Henry? Yeah, I this is footnoted in the book. I, I don't have the, uh, the paper in front of me, but there is an estimate of the um, total housing space occupied in the entire United States. And there are also several estimates for how much space is occupied by parking, and the parking estimate is greater than the housing estimate. So um, the uh, I think one thing to understand about parking is that parking takes up a lot of room. Um, I mentioned earlier that it's expensive, but it also takes up more space than just the you know 9 by 18 uh, space that it takes to park a car because you need um, ingress and egress and driveways and curbs, and, and there's all this stuff that's sort of built into the urban landscape that you may not even think about. I mean, like, you know, you go to your average suburb and the street is probably, what, 40 feet wide, 35 feet wide. Um, and then you go to another country and it's just they, they don't do it that way. You know what I mean? Like in Japan, for example, where they don't have street parking, um, it's uncommon to see, you know, a street in a residential neighborhood that's more than 15 or 20 feet wide. And, and that's an example of how I think some of this parking has just become so second nature to us. Um, that we don't even think about it. You know, the fact that the garage is often the largest room in the house, the fact that every single family home, in addition to the spots in the garage, probably has another two spots in the driveway and another two spots at the curb. And yeah, it, it's unbelievable, but it adds up. Well, Daniel writes, parking on the street versus parking at home or a venue doesn't have the same value. If I can't park at the theater, that's a choice. If I can't park at home, that's not a choice. It's a real problem for me, my kids, and family. Please explain or run the calculation to reflect our priorities. Um, you mean, when he, uh, what, what do you think he means when he says it's not a choice? Uh, he says, if I can't park at home, that's not a choice. I think it means that it's not an option to have like, that like, be your home if you can't park there, right? Or, or like, or like, yeah, you can decide whether you want to go to the theater or not, but your home is your home, and if it doesn't yeah, have parking, exactly. then um, too late for you. you. Choose yeah. not to go to the theater, but yeah, exactly. Well, I think everybody makes the, you know, everybody thinks about parking when they buy a house. I mean, I think it's it's a choice that people factor into their decisions about where to live, and um, there is certainly plenty of housing available in this country that has ample parking included. If anything, I would say there is a shortage in particular of housing without parking because there are many people who would take that trade-off, who would like to live in a place where driving is optional and maybe they give up the security of parking, but in exchange they get the ability for their kids to walk to school and they get the ability to walk to the grocery store and, and all that. And those environments are, are pretty limited. And I think one of the things that the parking reformers and the parking reform movement is is about is is actually giving people a choice because for the for the past 70 years we we haven't had a choice i mean it's been a mandatory when you buy a new home home or apartment to buy also a parking space or two and that's the lack of choice <laughs> the choice is well you know this developer built without parking this developer built with with parking and and me as a as a tenant or as a buyer i can decide which one better suits my needs yeah, but I think you're also raising the point that if you did start to do away with parking, and California has moved towards getting rid of parking minimums, which we can get into a little bit more later about the effect that that's starting to have or that it's appearing to have in places where it's being done across the state, um, 
outside of Los Angeles. But but if you're going to do that, you really do have to wonder if mass transit is robust enough, adequate to help people who don't, who won't be able to park their cars have another way of getting around. It's a big part of it, right? Yeah, I think I can answer that. And the answer is no. (laughs) I mean, like, clearly not. The mass transit system in this country is, um, I think, way behind where, where it needs to be in order for us to decrease our reliance on driving and, um, you know, make it so that, you know, a $700 car payment is not um, a requirement to hold down a job, right? And and make it so um, transportation is not our number one source of greenhouse gas emissions and make it so 10,000 pedestrians don't die getting hit by cars every year. Like there are some real externalities of our dependence on automobiles that I think we're trying to figure out if we can um, deal with that. Uh, with respect to the transit system, I, I, I agree. Like, in most places, um, the the ways of getting around without a car simply there simply are not enough options for for many households to to go car free. Um, but but you know most households in this country have more than one car. The median household has two point two cars. So I think the question is not uh, can we convince people to go car free. It's change at the margins. It's will this household with three cars go to two cars if you know we provide um, the type of safe streets infrastructure that allows them to make local trips on foot. Again, I don't think anybody is going to stop um, driving to work anytime soon if they work out in the suburbs and the bus only comes once an hour. But again, a lot of these trips are local. And so a lot of it is about this kind of virtuous cycle where you you decide that, you know what, we're going to put the parking behind the store instead of in front of it so that you can walk down the sidewalk and go right into the door. And we're going to make a bike lane on the street, no matter what the people who park there say. And uh, and we're going to we're going to make this street uh, safe and we're going to make the cars go a little more slowly so that pedestrians feel more comfortable. And those are the kinds of changes that can create an environment where those local trips can be done on foot. Well, Jan writes, there is a lot of parking at Costco usually, but people drive around searching for a space right up close when they could park farther away and heaven forbid, walk a little farther. Underscoring the point you were making about our entitlement to parking that's right up there, but also maybe what we'd be capable of if we just said, you got to do it this way. <laughs> we have more after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Not 
We're talking about parking this hour. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Parking, the emotional hold it has on us when we're looking in vain for a spot. The impact that parking spaces and lots have on our cities and natural environment and why it's been so hard for officials and planners to shake the idea that we need so many parking spaces. That's thanks to Henry Grabar writing a book called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. Grabar is a staff writer for Slate. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your questions for Henry about the impact of parking on our lives, what can be done to make parking better, especially here in California. Have you chosen to do things, live places, go places based on the availability of parking? Anything you're a little embarrassed to admit you did for a parking spot? You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786. Peter in San Francisco, you're on. Hi, Peter. Yes, hi. Um, As somebody who grew up in a city and lives in cities pretty much most of my life, I love being able to walk places and take public transit. And, you know, when I hear uh, the author saying that uh, everybody likes to drive or wants to drive or needs to drive, I'm wanting to shout, no, that's not so. Uh, I had a car for quite a portion of my life, but haven't had one for quite a long time. And I'm glad that that's how it is. Um, What I'm concerned with is the huge uh, support that the public gives pretty much invisibly through the support of, for the support of cars and driving by all of the things that are said, in particular the public spaces that are allocated, the public garages, mm. the, just the streets, the paving, the police that do it, the courts that deal with accidents, the hospitals that deal with accidents, and so on and so forth. And the other thing is what calculation has there been made of my contribution to the availability of parking every time I take a bus? to go someplace or walk someplace instead of taking a car or my car. And I think my sense is that if there were a calculation of all of the supports that are not so visible for cars, there would be a lot more support for much better public transit and other things, as your author has said, about Mm. making streets safer and more pleasant and so on for walking. Well, Peter, thank you. In terms of subsidizing supports for driving, your thoughts on that, Henry, or whatever Peter brought up there that sparked something for you? Boy, I, I, I couldn't agree more. You know, Peter, I don't own a car either, so I'm certainly not saying that um, everybody drives. I just do think we should acknowledge that it it appears to, it is the status quo for lots of people, whether it is their um, their full preference or not. Um, I couldn't agree more also with respect to the subsidy that, um, that goes towards those drivers. There are so many externalities of car culture, and parking is a big one. So uh, one estimate that I cite in the book – pegs the annual cost of storing cars in the United States between 200 and $550 billion. Now, how much of that is paid by drivers directly in terms of parking meter fees or tickets at garages? $5 billion. So they pay $5 billion for between 200 and $550 billion worth of parking. So a lot of that parking is being subsidized by you, by me, um, just generalized in terms of the amount of space we devote to it in cities, the requirements at stores. Um, I think the most obvious one is is street parking in busy cities, right? Like, you know, um, I'm I'm uh, I'm in Brooklyn right now. You're in San Francisco. The curbs on our uh, on our streets are some of the most valuable land in the entire world, and everybody is fighting over every square inch of real estate apart from the curb. But suddenly when you get on the curb, well, it's free, provided you use it for just one thing, 
which is storing your car. And I think um, that strikes a growing number of people as sort of ridiculous. And um, and I think you saw some of that um, you saw some of that arbitrage play out during the pandemic, where people realized, you know, um, wow, what if we what if we did use this space for something else, you know? And you may not agree with the idea that restaurants get first dibs on the space in front of their restaurant, but at the very least, each of those spaces is now contributing hundreds of dollars in um, in taxes every every day to the city, and that goes to pay for public services and, and so on. So. Um, yeah, there's there's certainly certainly a lot of subsidy for drivers um, just starting with the curb in front of your house. Well, this is Narites. As someone with an invisible disability, I qualify for a blue parking pass, but the nasty looks and confrontations I get from people who don't realize that not all disabilities involve wheelchairs are overwhelming. So I'm limited to places with good, easy, regular parking where I can park close or be dropped off close. Wow, that is a big impact in terms of our expectations around parking. I'm sorry to hear that. Um, another listener, Alyssa is on the line. Hi, Alyssa, you're in Menlo Park, join us. Hi, yeah, so I'm so embarrassed to admit that the other day I was taking my son into the, uh, the doctor's office and it was a bit of an emergency and I parked in a handicap, or no, it was an electric vehicle spot. Um, because there was nowhere else to park, and I was late, and he was having trouble breathing. And it was it was striking to me that there were probably 10 unused handicapped spots and another three to five electric vehicle spots um, that were open. And meanwhile, regular spots were really hard to come by. So I'm curious how that calculation is made and, um, you know, whether there might be some unintended consequences of determining the right allocation of those types of spots. Mm. Any insight on allocations? I'm also struck by Alyssa using the word unintended consequences. Henry? Well, I think, you know, that gets back to the point we were discussing earlier about how the parking is um, divided between these different uses. You know, I think if the city planners um, are trying to guess how many EVs are going to be at the doctor's office versus how many um, uh, individuals with disabilities, like that... um, that, it's very hard, maybe, to come up with a pr- precise solution uh, that does not leave um, some a lot of empty parking spaces sitting around. And and so I think um, one thing they could do is 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 say, um, you know, instead of reserving ten spaces for EVs, just um, maybe think a little bit more flexibly about how that parking is 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 allocated. And then um, I think with respect to looking for um, uh, stable parking, um, I think it's important that. Uh, we remember that, like, I think the one of the goals of better management of parking is, is not to make it harder to find parking, but make it so the people who need parking the most, and I would put your listener in that category, um, can easily find parking where and, and when they when they need it. Yeah, but there is so much change that needs to happen, right? So I guess what I'm wondering is, have you found that enough people really want to give up parking um, for a more walkable place or a better quality of life if at the same time you may be faced with a situation like Alyssa's where her child was having trouble breathing and she couldn't find a parking spot or, um, you know, 
any other reason that we see how important parking is to people and that being amplified by any given situation. I, I ask this because you, you talk about you talk about one survey in 2022 where more than half of baby boomers, right, said that free parking was more important to them than affordable housing in their neighborhoods. I guess I'm just curious what kind of appetite exists, even if we do want to say, oh, there's too much parking or there's too many parking spaces that are changing the character of our neighborhood. I feel like it's a hard sell still. It is. But, you know, one of the one of the funny things that's happened over the last you know, 30, 40 years is that a lot of these parking challenged areas like, say, San Francisco or Brooklyn or, you know, Wicker Park in Chicago or, you know, we could go on Georgetown in D.C., like Society Hill in Philadelphia, Back Bay in Boston. Like there are so many 19th century, early 20th century neighborhoods like this where parking is a pain in the butt. And yet those are the most expensive places to live in the United States. So what does that say about preferences? To me, it says that's the type of housing that we are underproviding, and um, and that many people, despite the fact that they um, drive now, um, if they were given a, a fair choice uh, between an apartment where they could walk places and a house where they had to drive everywhere, um, they might choose the former. But as it so as it you know because of all these restrictions we've we've placed on on building precisely those kinds of neighborhoods, um, we have not provided these two types of housing in anywhere close to uh, to equal measure. Um, so. You know, it's hard to say, right? Like, sure, most Americans live in the suburbs and drive cars, but um, how much of that is preference and how much of that is the reality of um, super expensive housing in, in neighborhoods where you can walk? I mean, I think it's a, it's a tragedy that in America, being in a neighborhood where you can walk places has become some sort of symbol of elitism or privilege. I mean, it's walking. What could be more normal than that? And yet well we've built so many neighborhoods where it's impossible. San Francisco features prominently in your book as a city that has experimented with demand-based pricing for downtown parking meters since 2005. I'm wondering if this has been an effective solution to make city streets more efficient. It's still a little early, but I think you're saying that the signs point to yes. I read an early study of the SF Park um, program, which for those who don't know, the idea was to charge for street parking based on how many people wanted to park there. And so there was a lot of block-by-block uh, block discrepancy in San Francisco in the availability of parking spaces, which is not surprising, right? Like there were streets um, like uh, Chestnut Street where there's like lots of shops and restaurants and everybody wants to park there. And then there were streets like Lombard Street, which are really busy and full of traffic and, and not anybody's first choice. And so what the planners decided to do was, well, let's charge more for parking in, in the busier locations and let's see if we can get those long-term parkers, the people who are parked all day, to move a couple blocks to the side and walk a little bit more. And basically it worked, right? I mean, you, you saw um, drivers recalibrate their, their habits based on the price of parking. And in fact, what happened in San Francisco is that some of the garages actually got cheaper um, because they realized, well, you know what? We, can't, we shouldn't make all this parking the same price. Curb parking is clearly the first choice. And garages are the second choice. And so as the second choice, they, they should be cheaper. And, and that's good. I mean, you want people who are parking all day or even for days at a time uh, to be stowing that car inside a garage and, and not at a prime space on the street. Well, how do you make sure that you don't price people out who can't afford to pay a lot for parking when they need it, you know, for something important, but not for as long as you would in a garage? Yeah, that, that's a very challenging it's a very challenging subject. I don't, I don't quite have the answer because I think 
at the end of the day, it, it is it is a limited resource, and we have to find some way of allocating it. And first come, first served, um, doesn't work very well. And um, and paying for it works pretty well. And um, and and there are some unfortunate externalities associated with that. But I think the the thing to remember is that um, for people who work with their cars, and I think that's often who's being invoked here when we talk about, you know, service workers, low-income people, people who live outside the city, should they have access, et cetera, um, their time isn't free, right? So there is a significant externality when you're called upon to fix a lock or deliver a package to not being able to find a parking space. And I think many people who work with their cars would say, you know what, being able to find parking and not risk a ticket I'd pay 275 for that. I mean, you know, you look at delivery vans in busy cities, they rack up $10,000 in fines every year. And that's just the cost of doing business. And I don't think there's anything equitable about that. And then the more profound question is, if we have free parking and an expectation of free parking, one of the things that comes from that is busy curbs. And one of the things that comes from that is this neighbor opposition to new housing that is motivated by fear of a parking shortage. And that to me is, that's a powerful force in neighborhood politics. And it stops us from welcoming new people into our communities when we see new neighbors as coming in car-sized packages. And I think that's a, that's a toxic development. Hmm. And, and that is one of the externalities of free parking as well. So um, yes, free parking is good and equitable, but unfortunately I think the costs outweigh the benefits. We're talking about how parking explains the world with Henry Grabar, and this happens to be a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, yes, uh, let's talk about that just for a second, um, because you do talk about how parking requirements have been used to stop affordable housing projects. And uh, again, that is, I mean, you can talk about the Solana Beach in San Diego County issue if you want, but it is amazing the extent to which um, reducing parking minimums does allow for more housing development. And in a place like California, <laughs> that would be a good thing, I guess. Oh, yeah. I mean, for, for sure. And I think, again, maybe you think that the situation in downtown L.A. is a little exceptional because they had all these um, old uh, buildings uh, waiting around to be developed. But um one of the interesting things that, that has happened in, in the last few years is we've seen these experiments in um, what happens if you don't require parking. We've seen those experiments spread. Um, and so you've seen you know cities like San Francisco and Hartford and Buffalo um, all decide that they're not going to make builders provide parking. And then the question is, okay, well, how much parking will they build? And one study out of Seattle, which I think is interesting. So Seattle, since 2012, uh, or between 2012 and 2017, Seattle approved 60,000 new units of housing um, that were not subject to parking requirements. Now, what did developers do um, for the people who were moving into those buildings? 70% of them had parking anyway. Okay, no surprise. But they built 40% less parking than would have been required under the old law. Now, what does that amount to? 18,000 fewer parking spaces and a savings of more than half a billion dollars. Now, that is just a massive amount of um, parking that we didn't build. And think of that not just in terms of the savings that can be passed on to tenants and buyers, but also in terms of the environmental um, cost of building all that parking, right? And this is something we forget. We know that parking incentivizes driving, but um, it also is a huge uh, consumer of natural land and materials and energy and carbon that goes into creating all these garages and spaces. Um, so so that's pretty significant, and, and I feel 
that's one of the more optimistic results I've seen from this uh, brief era of reform into which we are entering. Well, Sandra writes, since I began counting my daily steps, I now don't mind parking further away from my destination and simply walking. Could lack of parking be a public health remedy? Another listener writes, how about an Airbnb model for parking by the hour or more? Couldn't this help flatten out the demand peaks in our complex parking challenges? I would love to rent out my driveway for events in my neighborhood and be able to rent a garage or other off-street space when I need one. Um, wow. That... I, I love... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead, Henry. <laughs> I love that first suggestion. Wow. Uh, you said it, not me. But, <laughs> I <know>. um, <laughs> but uh, I agree. <laughs> and uh, walking is good for, for many reasons. Um, and uh, I think on, on the second point, I, I remember talking to uh, this founder, um, John Lawrence, who founded this app called Spot Hero. And yeah. Spot Hero allows you, if you don't drive, it allows you to... Um, uh, pick, reserve, and pay for a parking space before you leave your house. So um, it, it you know, gets a lot of the unpredictability out, gets a lot of the miles, you know, vanquishes all these miles driven searching for parking because it's been taken care of in advance. And when I talked to John, who who founded this company, and he said, when I started doing this, he lives in Chicago, and he said, when I started doing this, I thought there wasn't enough parking. And then what I realized is there is enough. It's just that we don't know where it is. And his company actually started with him renting out spaces near Wrigley Field for the Cubs games. And that's that was sort of the, the root of, I guess, his um, epiphany there that, you know, there is all this empty parking just sitting around like like your listener's driveway um, just waiting to be rented out. And and it's true. There's not really like a good uh, peer-to-peer marketplace beyond just like putting out a sandwich board and saying park here or $5. Well, it sounds like from your book, A, it's really important to be able to maybe question our entitlement to parking and how we park, um, but also at the same time make the existing parking a lot easier to use and find, and then more broadly, just kind of rethink the role that parking has played in our lives and if that's the role we want it to have. So thank you for bringing that to light for us, Henry. Uh, you got it. Thanks for having me. And, and Henry Grabar's book, if you want to read more, is called Paved Paradise, How Parking Explains the World. I can read Eric's final comment. When I moved to a new neighborhood a year and a half ago, I brought along my old Ford van. The parking in my new neighborhood was worse. My new place didn't have parking, and I didn't need the van anymore as we had closed the business some months before. When I found I was spending up to a few hours a week just looking for parking, I decided to get rid of it. I have absolutely no regrets. Thank you, listeners. Thank you, Susie Britton, for producing today's segment. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. <laughs> Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.